This is what biblical counseling is. It's applying God's word into your life. And, um, you know, we do that uh, proactively as we study the scriptures together, as we'll do even this morning. Um, and to, to be able to anticipate some of the problems that believers can have in their lives, but also in the church. Because the church, this is God's church, and this church isn't just people that come and are entertained or observe the preaching of God's word. Uh, we are linked together in God's church to have relationship with one another. And uh, as simple as a picnic helps us to begin to build those relationships, uh, that's what we're to have in the church. And as we go through um, this um, message that Paul has written, this letter to the Corinthians, he's calling them to a relationship with one another along with the relationship with the living God. And I hope you see that as, as we go through this letter. It's, um, it's more than talking to a people who come to hear good preaching and then go home. It's talking to people who have a commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ and a commitment to one another and the things that we're to accomplish with one another. Well, I was, I was thinking of this when I was, uh, just had returned. I, I went to a World Series game. Now, there were two World Series games. I went to the one on Friday night. So the Friday night World Series game was probably the best baseball game I've ever seen in my life. And what happened in that game is there was an exciting comeback uh, where the Rangers came back from being behind in a very dramatic way, and it caused the stadium to explode. Like, I've never seen a people that were just absolutely in great joy. Um, now, I didn't get to go Saturday night, but it was a very sad night where we couldn't score, and we couldn't pitch, and it was a terrible defeat. I'm sorry, Dwight, that you had to be there. <laughs> but um, that's, that's the difference that happens uh, just when you're observing sports and you're observing games. You're on this roller coaster a little bit. And you have great highs and great lows. Um, you know, it's in, a, in a, just a very simple way. Um, you know, when, when Paul was dealing with this Corinthian church, he had this great high. I, you know, much, much more exciting than winning a World Series game. Paul experienced this great high, this great excitement, this great joy. It says in chapter... Uh, 18 of Acts, when there were many of the Corinthians who heard the gospel, who believed and were baptized. Can you imagine the joy? It says even the angels in heaven celebrate that experience, right? And um, probably an amazing thing that Paul got to be a part of in planting that church and then teaching that church for 18 months. Um, but then he left. He left and uh, he's gotten some reports 
you got a report of all the difficulty that's going on in that church. And you know, for Paul, that was, that's what weighed on Paul. Even when he was um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he's, he's explaining to the Corinthians, he's, he's uh, defending his apostleship against false teachers. But one of his greatest burdens, he says, is, uh, yeah, he can deal with all the external things, and, but his daily pressure is one of concern for all the churches. And he says, who is led into sin without my intense concern? And he's going to talk today about how this church has experienced spiritual defeat. Spiritual defeat. We'll look for that in the passage as we come to it. But we're looking today at a verse of glorify God in your body. You are bought with a price. We're in the last part of this, this uh, correction for the Corinthians' problems, the response to the report that Paul has received. Again, our book theme that we're trying to get memorized here is from 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Today's verse is from 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So believers are to glorify God by acting selflessly and with humility toward fellow believers and by maintaining moral purity. So Paul's going to address two significant issues now. You remember he, he's talking about a church that he's shepherding. He's shepherding these people. He desires their maturity. Um, he wants them to understand and obey God's word. And they weren't doing that. That just wasn't the case right now. There were many problems that came into the church because the people continued to engage in the same sinful activity that marked them before they were saved. They were bringing those things in the church. Well, how does Paul address that? How does he, com- how does he correct the problems that are coming into this church? Well, he starts very positively, as we saw in the first chapter. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, look, you are God's church. He wanted them to understand their identity. You are God's church. And the way that you became a part of God's church is you received God's grace, it says in verse 4. And then in verse 7 of chapter 1, it says, you were permanently saved by God's power. And finally, in verse 9, it says, and you are to trust in God's faithfulness. So he starts positive. He wants the Corinthians to understand who they are in Christ. They're God's church. They received his grace. They're permanently saved by his grace. They're saved and held into their salvation by God's power. And they're trusting God's faithfulness. But then he changes his tone when he hits verse 11 because he says, he talks to these Christians, he says, but you are failing to obey God's command. I've received reports that this church is filled with pride and with selfishness. 
Their pride was displayed in the way that they had divided into factions, into divisions. They were following men. They were exalting men and the wisdom of men instead of exalting God and the wisdom of God. And he said, you, you can't do that. You can't have divisions and factions. So he called them to unify, right? That was the first call to this church. He called them to unify. And that required humility instead of pride. And then last week, we saw that they were tolerating sin in their midst. They were tolerating a man who had his mother's or his father's wife. Just gross immorality. And Paul identified that as pride as well. That they thought they could tolerate sin in their midst and it wouldn't affect them. Remember, what did he say? No, you can't do that. Because even a little yeast, a little leaven, leavens the whole loaf. In other words, you tolerate sin and it's going to destroy the church. You can't tolerate sin. He called on the church to put sin out of the church, to purify the church by following the steps of church discipline and by expelling the immoral man from among them. And again, that wasn't a punitive blow at the man as much as it was an effort to bring the man back to restoration of his relationship with God and with the people in the church. That's the primary purpose of church discipline. But it's also to purify the church, to not allow sin in this midst. So Paul called on the church to unify and to purify so that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God and the wisdom of God. So today, we're going to look at two other problems. In order to fit that into my unify and purify, I've had it to identify. He wants these people to identify with Christ. He wants them to imitate Christ's attitude in their relationship with one another and to maintain moral purity. So those are the two uh, corrections that Paul's going to make, call these people to make in their lives. First, we're going to look at how they're to identify with Christ by imitating Christ's attitude. So to go to, if you're not in chapter 6, turn to chapter 6 and let's read verses 1 through 11. So Paul says, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go before the law, before the unrighteousness, and before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor, adulter, nor, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our Lord and God. Well, you get the gist here of what Paul's seeking to correct. It's a correction of selfish vindication. It's selfishness. By acting, they're to act instead of selfish, they're to act selflessly toward fellow believers. Now, in these, in this, in these first 20 verses, or in all 20 verses of chapter 6, there are six of these statements that begin, Do you not know? That's emphatic by Paul. Do you not know? It's like he's asking these Corinthians a question of, how would your behavior change if you acted like what you know? The three that are in 1 through 11 are these. In chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Then he says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? And then he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying, Corinthians, are you acting like these things that you know? And he's going to show them that they're not acting on anything that they know. Instead, they're acting like they did before they were saved. They were acting, they were bringing their sin into the church by not acting on what they know. And Paul just makes it very clear, simple statement. Believers are not to sue one another in the public courts before unbelieving judges. He says in verse 1, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, and this is, this is a, a dispute that has become a lawsuit, and he says, does any of you who has a case against his neighbor dare, dare, that word dare, it says, do you defy God? Dare to disobey God with a public display of contentiousness, greediness, disrespect? Do you dare to go to the law before the unrighteous? The unrighteous, that's their moral condition. They're unregenerate. They're not saved. He says, do you dare to go to them? And he says, and not before saints. Saints are other believers, those that have been saved. 
you remember last week, we, we studied all the one another's and the relationship that we're to have with other believers. And, you know, the, we're to love one another. We're to seek to do good to one another. Suing one another is not on that list. It's not one of the one another's. It's the opposite, right? Of all the concern we're to have for one another, we're not to sue one another, especially not to regain justice from unbelievers. Just as Paul was surprised and disappointed with the Corinthians' tolerance of sin, their lawsuits against one another shocked him. It violated God's command for the relationship they were to have with one another. They had greater concern for their own vindication than for the unity of the church or the glory of God. And Paul called them saints because they'd been sanctified in Christ. Now he's called them to a relationship with other believers in the church that other believers in the church have received a sanctified mind. You know, they had received the grace of God and they were enriched in him, it said in chapter 1, verse 4, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ. In one thirty, it says, by his doings you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. That wisdom from God is what they needed to settle disputes. Not the world's wisdom. But no, not only were they guilty of not loving their brother, they showed no respect for the wise counsel of other believers in the church. These men who had been sanctified in Christ, enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, who were in Christ Jesus and had access to the wisdom of God. And Paul says, believers are to trust fellow believers as competent to resolve a dispute. He says in Titus 3.5, when he saved us, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's important to remember because there's a renewal that goes about in the mind of a believer that does not go along in the mind of the unregenerate. As a result of being regenerated and born again, your mind's transformed and you're able to think more like God. You're no longer enslaved to the thinking like the world. It says in Ephesians 4.23 that you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of truth. It says in Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Paul said in verse 2 of chapter 6, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What Paul's telling the people that are bringing these lawsuits in the secular courts, he's saying, look, the believers God has made competent to judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to constitute even the smallest of law courts? Are you, is there not that ability to settle these disputes with a brother in Christ? He says, do you not know that Believers will judge the angels in verse 3. God considers believers qualified to judge angels. Both of those judgments are talked about with Christ when he will judge unbelievers as he sits on his throne. 
and has authority over the nations and the angels. He said, look, this is the type of competency that believers have. And he's saying, and you're going to unbelievers? You know, it's very similar to what Daniel was saying about counseling. Are you going to go be counseled by a secular authority that uses man-centered ideas to resolve your problems? Or are you going to go to the Word of God that's sufficient? This is what Paul's saying here. He's saying, how much more matters of this life? Believers who will judge the world and fallen angels in the future surely are more qualified to settle disputes between believers today with the benefit of God's Word and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So he says in verse 4, so if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, these public judicial courts, do you appoint them as judges who are no account in the church? And the answer to that question is, no, don't do that. He says, don't disgrace God by rejecting the wisdom he gives to his people and for the wisdom of an unbeliever. It's incomprehensible to Paul. He can't even imagine that. It should be incomprehensible to those in the church. In verse 5, Paul says, I say this to your shame. He's trying to help these believers see how shameful this is. This behavior is shameful. It shows a contempt for Christ and his church. They should be broken over their sin. In verse 5, he says, Is it not so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? There are more than one. All of those that have been sanctified and redeemed, that have been given the indwelling Holy Spirit, that have access to the Word of God. He says, one wise man. When Christians do settle any disputes, between themselves by submitting to the decision rendered by another believer, they show confidence in the wisdom that God gives through his word and through his spirit. The message to the church and to the world is they trust God and his people. But verse 6 says, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. See, the opposite's true. When Christians seek an unbeliever, decide the disagreements between them, they show a lack of faith in God and in his word and in his spirit and in his people. And what does Paul call that? He says in verse 7, actually, then it's already a defeat for you. He calls it spiritual defeat. It's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. The Corinthians' decision to sue one another is a spiritual defeat for the individual and the testimony of the church. They have placed their own selfish desire to gain an advantage from their brother above the testimony for Christ. Paul has a solution to that. He says, look, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? What's more important than your personal justice is your personal testimony in God. If you have an issue with an individual that cannot be resolved, even if you appeal to a fellow believer, and there's still not a resolution, 
then suffer the loss. Don't bring a lawsuit in a secular court. Place your trust in God for justice. Look, this opens up your ability to forgive the offending brother and remove all bitterness from your soul. It doesn't say that every issue is going to be resolved to your benefit or to your, the way that you desire. You know, I've been involved in this church in um, helping try to resolve disputes between believers, and there's a real contrast. There's some people that come in, they know they're not having a lawsuit uh, in, in courts outside of the secular courts. But they know they're to be given justice in the church. And they come to the elders and demand justice. And that's a difficult attitude to deal with. Because you want to resolve a dispute. You want to be able to bring God's word to bear. But you need people to be humble. You need people to be submissive. It doesn't help when they come in demanding their justice. It does help if they come in with an attitude that they're going to place the need of their brother ahead of their own. It does come in when they come with an attitude, they're going to submit to the decision that's made, and they're going to be content with that. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. I tell you, it's a joy to deal with one, and it's a burden to deal with the other. The one that comes in with the right attitude to, to desire to imitate Christ is much more likely to have a resolution that removes the bitterness from your heart. Do you understand that bitterness comes when you don't forgive and when you carry that anger, frustration and in your heart? It's, it's like corrosive. I used to work in a battery department. Once in a while, that acid would spill on my blue jeans. I came home, I had holes all over them. Stuff's corrosive. So is bitterness in your heart. It will eat you up. We have the example that we're given in Matthew 18. Not a church discipline beyond that. When Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, remember, this is a brother who has sinned against him. This isn't, you know, a dispute here. This is somebody that's sinned against him. How often do I forgive a brother who has sinned against me? And you know Jesus' answer to that. There isn't a number. As long as your brother comes and desires to be restored to you and is repentant, you forgive him. I do not say... Uh, seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You know, the end of that uh, example of the wicked slave who was unforgiving is this comment that, for me, resounds in my relationships with others. This, I, I mean, I just, this seared in my heart. I can't forget this. When, in Matthew 18, after Jesus had forgiven, I mean, the king had forgiven the servant everything, and the servant ran out and demanded payment from an individual. That slave was brought back to the king, 
And summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? How much have you been forgiven? How much have I been forgiven? Everything. Everything. What did we do to deserve that forgiveness? Nothing. It's how we're to treat our others that we come into conflict with. We're to be forgiving. Not because of what they do, because what God has done for us. He says in 1 Peter 4.15, Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but to glorify God in his name. See, that's what may happen. When you plead your case and the decision is not resolved in a way that you feel is just, and it may not be just. It may be that there can't be a resolution. But you suffer as a Christian. You're not to be ashamed, but that glorifies God. You may lose financially. You may lose in other ways, but you're glorifying God. That wasn't the case here in verse 8. It says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. By bringing lawsuits against your brethren and a desire to protect your possessions or your own rights, you violate your relationship with the Lord and your brother in Christ. You know, believers are to imitate Christ by acting humbly and selflessly to resolve a dispute. Their their being self-willed was evidence of unbelief. Paul makes the comparison of the the self-willed sin of suing your brothers equivalent of the sin patterns practiced in the life of the unrighteous. In verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he walks through all of this selfish behavior that was marked them before they were saved. He said, Don't be deceived. This selfish behavior, the neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, all of those are selfish acts of sin. And they were all part of Satan's multi-pronged attack on the family. And then he goes in and says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Pattern of sin that's evidenced by unbelief should never even be named among you. But they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not this rebellious behavior. And your behavior is like that in this selfishness. He says, but that's the way you were, but that's not how you're to be. In verse 11, he says, but you were sanctified. And that's, they were sanctified, or they were washed first. He says, you were washed. Washed is that picture of a new birth that we saw in Titus 3, 5. So you're washed to a new birth. You were sanctified to live a holy life. He says in Hebrews 10.10, by this 
will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all? And then Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we were washed to a new birth, sanctified to live a holy life, and then we were justified to obtain a, a new standing, a right standing. A right standing before God. We were declared righteous. We obtained Christ's righteousness, not our own, but Christ's. Ephesians, or Romans 3.24 says, being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you've been justified by his blood. We shall be saved by the wrath of God. God washed, sanctified, and justified the Corinthian believers through the sacrifice of his son and through the work of his spirit in order to free them from the bondage of the sinful pattern of life they used to live. But by suing other believers, they were falling back into the, that pattern of their previous life. Paul explained how God had redeemed the believers, that in the future they'll have authority to judge unbelievers and the angels, and they were certainly competent to judge one another's disagreements. They were spiritually defeated by their trust of unbelieving judges for justice instead of trusting fellow believers in God. It was God who washed, sanctified, and justified them. And it was God whom they were to trust to provide justice, even if they had to suffer temporarily. Therefore, the Corinthians were to turn away from suing those in the church and seeking personal selfish vindication, but rather resolve disputes in selfless humility, seeking to be at peace with his brother in Christ. They were to identify with Christ by imitating his character. Okay, I've mentioned that a couple of times. I'll give you what those verses are that show you Christ's character. Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice of God for a fragrant aroma. And I know you're all sitting there as I was. What comes to mind immediately is from Philippians 2. We're to do nothing from what? From selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as what? More important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but regard, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're not to be selfish. We're to be humble. We're to regard one another as more important than ourselves and not just look out for our own personal interests. This is the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And 1 Peter 2 says, you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, he trusted God. He entrusted himself to God. That's what we're to do. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to their faithful creator in doing what is right. Paul called the Corinthians to identify with Christ in regard to their relationship with others. And it's more important than yourselves in resolving dispute. Their testimony of trust in the character of fellow believers and faith 
in the Lord is on display before the world and before the church. Well, in addition to imitating Christ's attitude, oops, hope you got that one. Believers are to maintain moral purity. Let's look at verses 12 through 20. All things are profitable for me, but not all things are all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised up the Lord, but God will also raise up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I not take... Shall I take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You know what's as incomprehensible to Paul as lawsuits among believers? It's sexual immorality in the life of a believer. And here he tells them why that is. He tells them, look, believers are not to engage in sexual immorality. I mean, we think, why does that even have to be something Paul has to address? Are, are, do you understand the amount of sexual immorality that's in the church today? I mean, read the headlines. It's not amongst even just among the people. The leaders in the church are falling to sexual immorality. And Paul's saying, that's incomprehensible when you think of your connection to Christ. He gives us these three more do you not knows. And what he's saying is how would your behavior change if you acted like your bodies are members of Christ? If you acted like that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. If you acted like you knew that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You get to that sin that he's addressing in the end of verse 13 where he says, your body's not for immorality but for the Lord. In verse 18 where he says, flee immorality. For the Corinthians were falling back into the sins they had practiced before and they were bringing them into the church and they rationalized their sin by abusing their freedom from keeping the law. And they, they had these slogans that they said that gave them the liberty to do this. And here's their first slogan. They said, all things are lawful. In other words, they were free from the law. Everything's permissible. This is their Christian liberty. They were not to be bound by the law. And Paul added, all things to their motto. He added, yeah, all things are lawful for me. He took that statement and qualified it, saying they're, they're lawful to him as well. 
Every sin he committed is forgiven by Christ, but he, follows, he qualifies that by saying, but not all things are profitable. That word profitable is not to receive an advantage. It's helpful. But see, no sin gains an advantage for a believer. Sin never brings a profit, but always creates a loss. Kistemaker says, we have no right to do whatever we please without taking note of the harmful effect our behavior has on our fellow man Selfishness is contrary to the command to love your neighbor as ourselves. And sexual immorality creates disastrous results in the life of the individual and for the people that he touches. It's disaster. When they say all things are lawful, Paul limits their second statement by saying, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's not going to be controlled by anything. He would not allow anything or anyone to master him because Christ is his master. In Romans 6, 14, he says, For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. It shouldn't create more sin. It should create more of a desire to be righteous in your behavior live in a holy way, but in the Corinthian church, sexual sin was their master for some of them. It was enslaving, and, it was pro- and it's progressive. Sexual sin is progressive. You know, I was working with a man who was, said he wanted to overcome his addiction to pornography or the way that he was looking at pornography. I met with him several times, and every time he came, he lied And he was discovered again and confronted again, and he left the church. And he called me after he's gone for about a week or two weeks. He said, Brother, I just want you to know I found a church that loves me. It loves me and accepts me even with my sin. His wife called me a month later, said her husband had been arrested because he had been caught up in a police sting and was seeking to entice a 12-year-old girl to a relationship with him. Sexual sin is enslaving and it's progressive. You know, uh, I was talking to Tom about that situation, and Tom said in all his experience in counseling those with the habitual problem of watching pornography, that if they didn't stop, they're... They either moved into homosexuality or pedophilia. It's progressive. It's enslaving and it's progressive. And yet the Corinthians in verse 13 were saying, well, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. Meaning that just as God made food for the stomach, and that relationship's biological, so men and women are made for each other and their sexual relationship is just biological. MacArthur says that what they're saying is sex is no different than eating. The stomach was made for food and the body was made for sex. But Paul qualified that statement and said, but God will do away with both of them, the stomach and the food. Food perishes. Most food has labels telling you how long you can eat it. And the stomach also ages. It's temporal. Neither will last. God will do away with both of them. He refutes the mottos of the Corinthians to abuse their Christian liberty. And then he mentions the body eight times in the next seven verses. 
Verse 13, he says, yet the body is not for immorality. You're not to walk in a way that pleases yourself, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, verse 1, it says you ought to walk in the way that pleases God, and you're to abstain from sexual immorality, that each of the Gentiles do not know God, or that, that you are to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, and not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You're not to transgress and defraud your brother in the matter because the Lord is avenger of all these things. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Paul calls the Corinthians to identify with Christ by responding to their connection with, with, with Christ. They're connected to Christ. It says, the body not for sexual immorality, but the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Believers were made to serve the Lord. God created us for the purpose to serve him. Psalm 100, verse 2 and 3, it says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing, knowing that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us, and not we ourselves, for we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We belong to God. We are made to serve him. Verse 14 says, Now God has not only raised the Lord, just as God raised Jesus from the dead, but he will also raise us up through his power. The body will decay in the grave, but this same body will be made alive in Christ and will be raised in an imperishable body. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for a Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. He will transform the body of our whole state with conformity to the body of his glory by the exertion of his power. So the resurrection of the dead, it will be sown in imperishable body. It will be sown in a perishable body, raised in an imperishable body. Just to make sense. Although committed to the grave at the time of death, our physical bodies are precious to God. He has a high regard for them and will raise them by his power. Again, Paul goes on to say, believers are members of the body of Christ. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Our bodies are for the Lord now and they're for the Lord in the future, but they're even part of the Lord's own body in the way that it says in 1 Corinthians 12, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it, and that's in the church, and God has appointed the church. Ephesians 1.22, he says, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. And then Romans 12, 5 says, so we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Verse 15 says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Incomprehensible. Shocking to even think of such a thing. May it never be, he says, never. 
verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who judge, the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. It's that picture in marriage from Genesis 2:24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. MacArthur says, within the bonds of marriage, the Christian husband and wife become one flesh and are one in the Lord. But when the husband has illicit relations with a prostitute, he is one flesh with her and breaks the bond with the Lord. Instead of receiving God's blessing, he is under his curse. In verse 17 it says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one in spirit with him. So understand the ramifications of using your body, which is for the Lord now and in the future, which is a member of Christ's body in the act of sexual immorality. It defiles your relationship with Christ. In contrast, the one who joins himself to a prostitute in sexual immorality is the one who joins himself to the Lord. In John 15, 4, it says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And in verse 18, it says, flee immorality, run away from sexual immorality. Have that picture of Joseph in your mind. And from Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife was seeking to have adultery with him, she said, lie with me. And he left his garment in his hand and fled the room. I mean, it's just that kind of radical Get away from it. Flee. 2 Timothy 2. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart and perseverance and gentleness. goes on to say that every other sin a man commits is outside his body, but the immoral man sins against his body. Sexual intimacy brings a man and woman into a one fresh relationship to bring a pure, spiritual Physical union, a union created by God and blessed by God. But fornication and adultery corrupt the sinner's relationship with the Lord and with the violated person at the deepest level. It destroys the lives of people in the most tragic way. Verse 19, he says also, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Romans 8 9 says, however, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, you're a temple. Your, your body is a temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit dwells in Christians and therefore your body's a temple. It's the same word that Paul used for the building that contained the holy place and the most holy place. And God's temple is not to be defiled by man's sexual immorality. He says, and you're to know that you're not your own, that your body does not belong to you. It's to be used to accomplish God's purpose. 1 Corinthians 3.23 said, and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Believers were purchased by Christ and belong to him. Verse 20 says, for you were bought with a price. 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with what? The precious blood 
as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, as a result of being made to serve Christ, members of his body purchased by his blood and owned by him, believers are to maintain sexual purity. And as a result, the end of verse 20 says, you will glorify God in your body. And what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul has called the Corinthians to unify, to purify, and identify. To identify with Christ by not suing fellow believers, but imitating the character of Christ and treating people in a selfless, humble way. And to identify by Christ by maintaining sexual purity as members of his body and purchased by his blood. In this way, the Corinthian believers would glorify God. Well, we're going to look at application quickly. Very simple, straightforward. Do not sue believers in public court, but trust fellow believers to resolve disputes. 1 Corinthians 6.1, does any of you have a case against his neighbor, dare to go before the unrighteousness and not before saints? I say this to your shame. Is there not one among you, one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? And then two, be humble and selfless in the process of resolving disputes rather than harm your brother or the reputation of the church. He says, why not rather be wronged in 1 Corinthians 6, 7? Why not rather be defrauded? But do not, in Philippians 2, 3, but do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Straightforward. Don't look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. And finally, you're to maintain moral purity in order to gratify, in order to glorify God with your body. You know, Ephesians 5.3 says, But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And we're to know this. Just as Paul said in chapter 6, he also said in Ephesians 5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes among the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with him, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light, light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul's calling us to walk in a way that acknowledges that we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Our behavior should match what we know. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for your word. Lord, we're thankful for the picture that you give us here of Paul shepherding his church with great love, gentleness, and care. And yet with 
a great burden. Knowing that sin in your church can destroy your church. Father, may we take to heart the things that we know. And as a result, Lord, may there be no lawsuits or disputes among us that aren't resolved between us. And Lord, may we have an attitude like your attitude that places the needs of others above our own, that is willing to be wronged or defrauded rather than violate the testimony of your church and of our faith in you. And Lord, may we not be guilty of sexual immorality in our thoughts or in our actions because we understand, Lord, our body was made to serve you. Lord, we understand that our body is members of your body and that, Lord, you purchased us with a very precious price, with your own blood. May that draw us to a great motivation to glorify you in our bodies. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.